We've been, as a church, going through the Gospel of Luke, and what's fortunate is that we get to see kind of all of these different uh, events and experiences and sermons that, that Jesus puts on display, uh, that God has preserved in His Word uh, for us, for our generation, to have an idea of who God is and, and what the heart of the Father is. Uh, sometimes pastorally what can be difficult is then I can't dodge the, the less convenient parts of the Bible, but they are no less uh, necessary for us in bringing about the, the life uh, and fruit that Jesus desires for us to have. And so uh, one of the things that's helpful when thinking about Jesus preaching on these different topics that can be challenging is that we can remember how much he loves us, the love that he has put on display for us, that he is someone that we can trust, even though we may be perplexed, even though we may not fully understand or, or might have struggle or discomfort or have a hard time reconciling uh, these truths with our reality. It, it can be challenging, but Jesus believes that this is worth our knowing. All right, and so keep that in mind, and we can be reminded that, that he loves us and he's proven his love for us through, through all that he's done. So Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says this. Jesus is going to introduce some uh, characters for us. I'll have the verses up on the screen as well. Thank you, Eli, for helping out. Uh, he says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day day. And what's interesting about this character is that some of the uh, older translations of the Bible actually say that this is a certain rich man, uh, that it seems as though that this is a, a particular historical character, all right, and, and that this isn't necessarily a, a parable, and sometimes it's kind of interesting trying to navigate whether what Jesus is telling us is an actual event or whether it's a parable, because we've seen that his teaching style has been to use stories about one who scatters seed in the ground, one who builds their house upon a rock, right? One who's walking through a field and stumbles upon treasure and then reburies it and buys that field in order to get that treasure, right? Jesus typically teaches in these, these parables uh, for us to understand a concept about his kingdom, about who God is, about who we are, and his characters remain unnamed. And so far, this character is, is unnamed but it seems as though this is a particular person that Jesus is thinking about uh, because, and, and we have seen him also refer to other historical events, the Tower of Siloam that fell uh, as more of a current era event for the people of Israel, but he's also referred to people like Abraham and other, you know, David and other events in the Bible as well. And so here he says, there's this rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And so this man uh, has this abundant life. Some people in Jesus' time may have falsely ascribed this outward blessing as an indication of God's favor on his life. But we're going to find out about this character that he was, in fact, uh, distant from God, that he was lacking that relationship. It seems as though it's implied he was lacking compassion for his fellow man uh, and that he was far from where God would want him to be. And in the abundance that he experienced in this life, sadly for this person, this is the, the closest they ever get to heaven, was their life on earth. 
We're introduced in verse 20 to another character. It says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And so here we have this other character in a very contrasted life and experience who is suffering, who uh, is laid at the gate. So it's very possible that Lazarus himself couldn't walk, right? Maybe could not have brought himself to this rich man's house. And this person, Lazarus, is sick, experiencing suffering in this world, that they have a sickness and disease that seems to have no cure. And so here we see another character, and this one is named. Uh, this one does seem to be a person uh, that Jesus is identifying, uh, where he maybe, you know, dis didn't disclose the name of the rich man, but that wasn't to protect the innocent, as we'll find out. Uh, but the, the rich man, what's interesting is, has a daily opportunity to show love and compassion to Lazarus, who's laid at his gate, right? The, the rich man had regular opportunity and the abundance to, to answer that need to be able to show love and compassion towards Lazarus. And it says in verse uh, 21 that Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so about Lazarus, we see that he, he longs for the crumbs, the scraps that fall from these sumptuous feasts, and we're never told whether he gets it. We're never told whether or not the rich man actually says, oh, like, hey, I'm done my meal. Hey, how about that guy Lazarus out there? Could you bring him what's left over? We know that that's what Lazarus desired, but we don't know if that need was ever met. And so this life on earth for Lazarus ends up being the closest to torment that he ever will be. Life is difficult and challenging. He's experiencing some suffering as a result of his own sickness and disease. He's experiencing some suffering because of the way that humanity is and its fallen nature and sinfulness and the way that it's not treating him as one made in the image of God. But this is as close to torment as Lazarus will ever be. And he's no longer in that place of torment. And in verse 22, Jesus fast forwards through everything else, every other detail about their lives. And he says that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And so in this story, their life on this earth is short. And the rest of the story is about what happens to them after their death, what happens to them in eternity. And so verse 23, Jesus reveals to us an uncomfortable picture. He says, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so what's interesting is within a single sentence, this rich man is feasting sumptuously. He dies, and immediately he's awake and aware in Hades and in torment. All right, that, that eternity is stepped into swiftly in the way that Jesus presents this. And so he sees Abraham afar off, and he sees Lazarus with him. All right, so the poor man that had died is, is with Abraham. Uh, some have equated uh, this space where Lazarus is to be the paradise that Jesus described to the thief on the cross that he died next to when he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, surely you'll be with me this day in paradise. 
All right, and so Lazarus seems to be in this location while the rich man, formerly rich man, is now in torment. And verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so what's interesting is we have a couple words to describe this man's experience. Uh, one is that he is in torment, and one is that he's in agony. And I want to suggest that the torment is not the word torture, all right? That his experience is not one of intentional kind of torture or malice being brought towards him, but torment, it seems to be something of a mental anguish being caught in a point of not being satisfied with your life's choices, but recognizing you might not have made any choices different than that anyway. All right, being in torment is being stuck in a circumstance you don't appreciate, but not having a solution to you where you would have actually chosen those options yourself. But what's interesting is that this man, he asks for mercy. And we know that we serve an abundantly merciful God. Right? One who is rich in love, who is long-suffering and patient. But this man's plea for mercy uh, is an, an ask, is a desire that is out of appropriate time. His, his request is not answered. All right? And that's like a heavy thing to think about, that it is consistent with the rest of Scripture that it says that, uh, I believe it's in Hebrews, that uh, it's appointed to man to die once and then comes judgment, that, that we enter into eternity and our choices have been set, our choices have been made, and, and he's now in this place of torment, and it's too late to ask or seek the mercy that God had made available. So once again, this is an uncomfortable thing to, to think about, but Jesus, loving Jesus, wants us to know this. And in fact, we'll find by the end of the story, this man wants us to know this. All right, and so this man asks for mercy, but it's too late. And what's interesting as well is his seeking mercy, I don't think, was mixed with repentance. He doesn't seem to acknowledge the wrong he did. He's not saying, you know, look at, I look at my whole life and everything I did wrong, like, I'm sorry for that. No, he just wants mercy. He, he wants the reward without the acknowledgement of of the wrong that he'd done, all right? And so it's lacking, it, it's a half-hearted desire that he seems to have. And so Abraham, in, in Jesus' story that he's filling us in on, Abraham responds and said, child, remember that in your lifetime you had received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so... Uh, as if doing, you know, some sort of report for 10th grade, comparing and contrasting, right? Jesus is very clearly making this point that they lived very different lives on earth and had very different outcomes in eternity. Now, one thing that's dangerous here is that this doesn't suggest, all right, that those who suffer are the ones who are saved. And this does not suggest that those who are comforted in this life are the ones that are guaranteed to be condemned, all right? Because Jesus is, is preaching a gospel that's consistent with the rest of scriptures, right? Because our eternal outcome is not based on our 
uh, nationality or our economic status. It's not based on what we endure in this life. All right? Those are not the things that determine salvation. Okay? Uh, and so while Jesus, I would want to point out, this isn't to suggest that those who suffer are the ones who are saved, what's interesting and inconvenient for us is that the converse is true. That those who are saved are going to encounter a degree of suffering in this life. All right? That just because we're saved doesn't mean that our life will be convenient, uh, that it will be avoiding every difficulty. It doesn't mean that we won't bear the cost of our own wrong choices at times or that we'll bear the, the brokenness of this world or like Lazarus even have disease that maybe we can't attribute a meaning to as to why God is allowing it. All right? Those who are saved, those who experience forgiveness still will encounter difficulty in this broken world. All right, and, and Paul would say that in moments like that, it's okay to be perplexed, but we're not in despair. We might not have all of the answers in those moments, but we don't need to give up hope. In fact, Paul, when writing Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, and my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then in verse 11, he says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet all from them all the Lord rescued me. And when Paul was in those cities, he wasn't out gallivanting with a bunch of young dudes, right, partying and making foolish choices. He was planting churches. He was preaching the gospel. He was inviting people to the forgiveness that Jesus offers and he's persecuted, he's beaten, he's left for dead. And, and Paul's saying like, hey, Timothy, you followed all of this. You've been following my life and my example. And in verse 12, he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so Paul makes the point, like, if you desire to live a godly life, it's going to be difficult at times. It's, it's promised to us. It's, it's guaranteed. There will be difficulty and suffering for those who desire to live a godly life. And the only way you can live a godly life is in Christ Jesus. We can't somehow make it happen on our own. And the solution to that promise isn't to be like, well, maybe I don't want to live a godly life after all. Right? Like Jesus would say that counting the cost is something you should sit down and do, but that the wise thing to do is to build your life upon the rock of his word. That as a wise man, that you would not only just hear the word, but you would likewise do it. And earlier in that passage, Paul emphasized and referenced his persecutions and sufferings that he endured that are promised to those who seek to live a godly life. Now, what's interesting in, in hearing about uh, Abraham's emphasis and contrast with, with Lazarus, who had a challenging life and now is in comfort, is, is this. It gives hope to us who endure. It gives encouragement to us who endure that our lives on this earth, well, they feel slow for the time being. Our days are numbered, right? That our life is a vapor, it says in the Old Testament, that, that this life is not going to last forever. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, and this is the same Paul who experienced trouble and turmoil, right? He says, 2 Corinthians 4, for this light, okay, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so even though we suffer in this life, he's, he's looking not towards his suffering, not towards his life now, but he sets his eyes on something else. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so I want to point out in Jesus' story here, Okay, it's not to say that those who experience suffering in this life are guaranteed salvation. Okay, but those who are saved will experience light and momentary affliction compared to what God is revealing in us. Now, the most tragic thing to consider according to the gospel, according to the Bible, is that there are those who experience suffering and difficulty in this life and still reject the offer that Jesus makes and then end up never getting that comfort and relief that he desires for them to have. That they, they continue unforgiven, broken, and stuck in their sin. And even though not all of their suffering is directly because of their sin, it's grievous to think that they reject the one who offers them mercy and grace. Another thing to consider in this parable is that those who are comforted are not guaranteed condemnation, all right? But Jesus would point out, like, be careful there, because when we are comforted, like, we have the tendency to place our hope and our trust in the uncertainty of riches, to, to, to focus our life on building our kingdom on the earth, and that is a danger of luring our hearts away, that our lives can be choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus made it abundantly clear, uh, which Matthew doesn't include this part in the Beatitudes, but Luke 6, 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And so there is this danger, there's this risk where Jesus is literally saying to the rich people in his own community how unfortunate it is for you that you're rich, that you're full, that you're laughing, right? Like he's saying that you've built your life around joy and comfort and pleasures, the, the fleeting pleasure of sin in this earth. And he's like, that's not what you need to be doing. Like that's not the thing that's going to produce joy in you that it's going to disappoint you, right? Not unlike the author of Ecclesiastes describing all of his pursuits having been vain, not giving him the thing that they thought, that he thought they would promise him, that they would reward him with. And so there is this danger, okay? Okay, that, that we could, whether rich or poor, have a desire to stay rich or a desire to be rich. And in so doing, it pierces ourselves through with many pangs, that it's something that brings about our own harm. And so Jesus and Paul would warn us about that, right? And in the case of this rich man in the story, his life it is implied that he wasn't generous with what he had, that he didn't use his riches as a means of storing up 
treasure in heaven, that he was not rich in good works. And so it wasn't his riches that were necessarily the problem, but it seems as though his heart was lacking generosity, and this was an indication that he had not encountered the love of God, that his heart had not been transformed by one who has received an abundant gift and likewise shows charity in giving it out. And so Jesus, I want to point out, has indicated how people are saved, okay? So even though there's this interesting contrast about these two lives, he has told us how we're saved. And it's not about being poor, it's not about being rich, and it's not about, the good news for us, about us being good in our own efforts. That Jesus had made the point uh, when at a party and this sinful woman had come to him and the people at the party are all upset, this is what he said in Luke chapter 7. He says, therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is not changing the gospel. All right, we are still saved by grace through faith. It is not of works. We cannot boast about ourselves. It is a gift of God. And Jesus is consistent with that message. All right, even though our sins are many. All right, forgiveness is available and the way we receive that gift is by faith and trusting in the completed work that Jesus has already done for us. So back to that story that Jesus is telling. And remember, this is Jesus telling this story. Loving Jesus. So verse 26. Abraham makes this contrast about comfort and agony, torment. All right? And he says this. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so what he seems to be pointing out is that once we enter into eternity, there's no opportunity to change location. There's no opportunity to shift in where we exist. There's no, sadly, no exit for those who are condemned. But the good news is, for those who are, who are forgiven, is that there's no fear of God changing his mind even a thousand years from now of like, you know what, I am going to count you guilty according to your sins. Right? There's no fear of losing the gift that God gives. The gifts of God are irrevocable. Right? God has granted forgiveness and salvation, and his perfect love casts out fear. All right? And when, when the Apostle John actually says that phrase, he ends up later on talking about that the, because of that perfect love, because of that lack of fear, we can have confidence on the day of judgment. That even in this life now, we can have hope of knowing Jesus, of knowing that we rest not in ourselves before, before God, but we can rest on the completed work of Jesus. Verse 27, now the rich man responds. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place 
of torment. And so what's interesting is while this man has not displayed repentance himself, uh, while this man uh, recognizes that he's in this scenario and he he's, has no way of escape, all right, that he desires, he believes that responding to grace and mercy in this life is worth it. That he desires that his own brothers, his loved ones, would experience repentance, that they would, they would be warned sufficiently by someone like Lazarus that we could go and tell this message of hope, right? That there's an opportunity for us to avoid this place of torment. That this man greatly desires someone to warn his family. And think about this, that Jesus in the Great Commission commands us to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. Jesus' heart is that we would go forward and bring the word of God, bring this message of hope, this life-changing truth of the word of God to people that they might have the opportunity to receive it, all right? That the Holy Spirit has inspired Luke to write this down, this story down from the mouth of Jesus and that God the Father has preserved his word even to this day that we can have confidence that Jesus did in fact say these things. And this man would agree with the Trinity in that mission of bringing the word of God, bringing a warning to the world for the sake of their opportunity to avoid a place of torment. Right? This man this selfish man recognizes finally the value of a godly warning, right? And Jesus is mindful of that exact thing because it's, it's akin to his mission, the reason for which he came to the earth, which was to seek and to save the lost, all right? Jesus is mindful of this reality because it drives him in his pursuit, in his love for those who are sadly going towards this same place of torment. And now what's so interesting is Abraham's answer in verse 29. He says this, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And, and the rich man said, No, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Okay? And there's this disagreement between the rich man and Abraham. Abraham's like, There is sufficient evidence in the word of God through Moses and the prophets, that, that we have the hope of believing there's sufficient reason for us to trust what is written, for us to turn now, for us to trust that God does in fact love us, that we can, we can believe that he does in fact offer forgiveness to us for our sins. There's sufficient evidence to come to that conclusion. He says, let them hear the word of God, the same word that you and I have provided and, and preserved for us today that there's sufficient evidence. But he has the belief, this rich man, just as many atheists claim that if there was more evidence, of course they would turn. Of course they would change their mind. Of course they would repent. Right? Like if, if Lazarus was raised from the dead and, and went and warned his brothers, obviously they would be like, you know what, I should do something about my life. But Abraham disagrees. Jesus disagrees. What's interesting is that this is what Abraham says, verse 31. I guess I'll read this first. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone 
should rise from the dead. All right? And so Abraham here, the biblical account, Jesus suggests that even with a plethora of evidence, some people will still reject. All right? As Paul says in Romans 1, that there are those who are uh, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, that they're already aware of the evidence of God in His creation, that His divine attributes have been made known to them. Right, that they even know the commands of the Word of God and are willingly rejecting it. All right, Peter talks about those who deliberately forget the things that God had written in His Word, that there's this intentional suppression of what God has revealed. All right, and what's interesting is that this speaks to the human heart. We would like to believe that with evidence, of course we would believe the truth. But the reality is that humanity, the majority of us, we're not on a truth quest. We're on a happiness quest. We're seeking the things that will bring us joy and pleasure in this life now. And that even if those five brothers, at least in their case, I don't think this is a general claim about all humanity, he says, even if someone raised from the dead, they still wouldn't believe it. All right? Even if they had all of that evidence, they still wouldn't believe it because they'd still rather like Pharaoh hardening his own heart, choose to live life according to their own way. And what's ironic about this statement is that Jesus, the Son of God, within a year or so from this moment, does in fact raise from the dead. And there are still those who reject. And, and that, that did produce faith in some to believe, but not all. And Jesus did provide evidence of who he was. He did have miracles and consistency in the Word of God, that prophecy was fulfilled by Him, uh, that He publicly made known His love for humanity, dying on the cross, experiencing the shame that He could offer salvation to us, that God reveals Himself through His Word, through Moses and the prophets, and in these latter days, through His Son, that we could know the heart of the Father, that we have the, the perfect image of God in Christ, right, demonstrating His love for the world. And what's interesting about this, this story that Jesus tells is of all the things that we don't know about eternity, of all the things we wish we'd know about eternity, of all the things that it's like, well, God, what is that going to be like? Or is this going to happen? Or what's that, you know, like we have all of these questions about what's heaven going to be like. We don't know all of those answers. But Jesus thought this was worth knowing. Something that we're inconvenienced by in knowing, right? Like, we, we kind of don't want to know this. But Jesus thought this story was worth knowing, that it gave us clarity about reality as it is, that it would in some way correct the way we live now, that we would live life like he did with purpose. But what I want to do is, is answer just some quick and common questions as I head towards a close. Uh, about hell, because it's a controversial and uncomfortable thing. And even though Jesus doesn't directly use the word here, it's at least akin to and parallel to many of the concepts that the Bible does preach. And so here's, here's a, a question about hell. Uh, did the church invent hell? Right, that's a criticism today. You'll see it even on social media. People like, no, the church just invented hell to try to gain members and to manipulate people. Like, that's what happened, right? That's the, the common criticism. Uh, the answer is no. 
right? Maybe in the Middle Ages with some artwork and things it was exaggerated to a degree or overly emphasized. But no, the church didn't invent hell. All right, Jesus spoke more on hell that sh by sure that I'm, compared to what I'm comfortable with, but Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And, and the, the evidence of what Jesus said was written down within 30 to 50 years of his lifetime. And it was at a time when the disciples were authoring these words, right, that they weren't receiving a benefit for this perceived manipulation, right? They weren't getting a, an abundance of power or wealth or sex, right? They, they weren't able to manipulate crowds about this narrative for their own benefit. They were receiving persecution and death, all right? There was no advantage to them. But even this concept, some of the concepts of judgment are in the Old Testament. So it's not like the church which existed after the Old Testament could have made it up. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here's another question or, or criticism. Does God punish people for not believing in him? Not, not quite. Right? That's not quite what's happening here. All right? Humanity is condemned because of the wrong and rebellion that we've already committed. All right? We're already guilty according to the law uh, that we have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. Right? We all have sinned. Uh, and so what the issue is is whether or not we experience the forgiveness that God would offer for those sins. All right, God didn't send Jesus into the world to give him a reason to condemn people when they didn't believe in him. God sent Jesus into the world to save and rescue and redeem, all right, from the guilt and condemnation that was already on us, all right? So he wasn't just like trying to come up with some fickle reason as to why he would condemn some and not others. In Galatians 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, Jesus came to rescue those who were already condemned, which was all of us. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus emphasizes this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that we're already guilty, and now the thing that we must decide is whether or not we believe in the one who was a sacrifice provided for us to be forgiven. All right, this is what he came to do, and he even shared that wisdom with those he knew would reject it because he desires for them to be saved. Hell is not some coercion by God for us to worship him. All right, it's not some trick that he's trying to do. God alone in all that he's done, is, yes, worthy of worship. God has made us. He is wonderful. He is glorious. But hell is a just judgment for the wrong that we have done. Romans 6, 23, it says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How about the question of how long does hell last? And this is an uncomfortable thing to think about, but in Matthew 25, Verse 45, Jesus says this, that he will turn and answer uh, to those who never cared for the poor or the sick, visited those in prison. He says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away, those who refuse to serve and love 
These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so it seems as though Jesus in his mind equates the length and the time period for which hell and justice for sin is done is the same as the time spent in his presence for, for eternity. And then that poses an even more difficult question. Is an eternal punishment for temporal sin appropriate? Is that, is that fair? Right? That's a criticism that's lodged against Christians. And I want to equip you with a possible answer, right? So that way, if you have your own doubts, right, that you're hopefully getting that resolved, but also that you can equip those who would criticize. Now, one thing to consider is that the amount of time it takes to commit a crime is not proportional to the, the severity of that crime or the punishment that is due it. You could spend a year embezzling a dollar a day and maybe never serve prison time even when caught. You might just be fined. It took a long time to do it. Or in a matter of moments, you could commit murder in something that is deserving of a life sentence and justice. And just because it took a short period of time does not somehow alter the reality of how horrible or heinous that activity was. One thing to think about is that sin against an infinite being may deserve infinite punishment. And it's not as if just because when someone enters into eternity that they necessarily cease sinning. They may continue for all eternity to be sinning against God in their hearts and in their words and in whatever actions are available to them. C.S. Lewis once said that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. People receive the desires of their heart, and since God made them and throughout their life, they consistently reject the one that he offered. Why would God force himself on them for all of eternity? He gives them the thing that they chose. And even in the parable or, well, story, well, you can make it whichever one you want. In the story, Abraham points out that there was that great chasm that those who would go from where they are to those condemned couldn't make it. But he didn't make it possible. There was no indication that there was those on the other side that ever would have the desire to come into the presence of God and his people. He, it wasn't included in the text, but he did make it clear that none may cross from there to us. And so it seems as though that people don't want the presence of God in this life and, and that God might honor that choice in the life to come. And Jesus makes that clear. This is the issue that's at hand. He says in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so Jesus comes and offers this abundant life, but we as humanity must choose to accept it. We must choose whether we'll follow God instead of living life our own way or like Adam and Eve, define good and evil on our own terms and choose to continue to walk in rebellion. An interesting thing about hell is in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't a designed destination for humanity. But yet, if we ally our, ourselves with his rebellion, that is the place 
that we would end up. And when it comes to thinking about all of these, these challenging things, one of the things that are, is worth considering is the heart and love of God. When Abraham himself, who was already in this story, in Genesis 18, was thinking through about God's justice brought against Sodom and Gomorrah, in conversation with God, this is one of the things he says in Genesis 18, 25. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing. And the thing he's referring to is this to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so one thing to consider about God and His justice is that He'll do what is right. There won't be any righteous person that is wrongfully condemned. All right, That God will bring about right and appropriate justice and will not send someone to hell or condemn someone who wasn't deserving of it. All right? That, that God is more just than we are. God is more loving and compassionate than we are. And He makes available a, a great way for all of us who are guilty to be able to choose to receive and follow. An interesting thing about hell is that a doctrine of hell is healthy. Not to be too punny there. But hell causes us to appropriately evangelize and to recognize the mission that Jesus gave us. It gives us a right view of that which is temporary and eternal. It gives us a right view of divine justice. And it's actually an answer to the problem of evil. It's not as if God is going to ignore evil for all of eternity. He is going to address it. Hell gives us a right view of our own sin, realizing the foolishness it is for us to commit right sin against God who has been so good and loving towards us. Hell gives us a right view of what Jesus paid, and hell gives us a right view of God's grace. That through Jesus, there is this gift, a free gift available to us who are guilty. And when Jesus was in torment, when Jesus was in agony, he desired that there would be another way for humanity. He prayed to the Father that there would be another way. It says this in Matthew 26. Then he said to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus is in this place of torment and agony. Jesus is in this place in which he's wrestling with a choice, not liking his options, desiring there to be another way, to the point of sweating drops of blood. And in that torment, Jesus chooses to endure torture for us. In that moment of torment, Jesus chooses to make his body an offering for our sin. That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That he could give the opportunity for us to be saved. Right? It would be convenient for us to say that there's no such thing as hell. But that would to, to nullify the whole mission for which Jesus was sent. It would, to, it would be to make meaningless the death that he died and the pain that he, ex 
experienced. Right? To, it would make the whole gospel mission pointless. Why would we go into all the world to offer this hope and good news if there's no need for rescue? So in torment about that choice, Jesus chose torture in order to redeem you and I. And it was the joy that was set before him that he endured that cross. And so this morning, as we think about the gift that Jesus gives us, it's incredible. None of us deserved it. None of us. And yet he offered it freely in, in a display of his love for you and I. Right? Jesus chose to drink that cup of judgment that you and I could drink a cup of life and forgiveness. Right? Jesus allowed his body to be broken that we could remember what he did and have communion with him, right? partaking in bread, remembering what he's done and having communion with one another as well. Right? Jesus did these things so that we could have life, that we could have communion with him now, that he would be with us to the end of the age and that we could be with him where he is for all of eternity. Right? Jesus gives us these gifts and it makes our hearts hopefully thankful that it's something that he did for free and something that we did not deserve. And so during these last couple songs, we'll have opportunity for uh, communion in the back where there's bread and juice available representing the blood and broken body of Jesus. And so in partaking in that, make sure that you've already trusted Jesus for forgiveness. Make sure that if you've already been a follower of Jesus, that your heart is right, that you've equally offered forgiveness to those who've sinned against you. That if there's burdens in your heart, if there's uh, sins that you've been allowing to cling to your life, that you're, you're resolving those issues in your life before the Lord. And that you're partaking in communion in a right heart, in a right attitude. And I think as we take communion this morning, we can all be thankful, but also be mindful that we offer the same good news that Jesus gave to us as we go out into this world on mission, right, to offer this hope to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Lord, even when we're not happy with what we hear, we recognize that what you say is true. Help us to not live a life that is fickle or meaningless. Help us to not live a life building a kingdom for ourselves. Help us to not live lives blind to those in need around us. Help us to, Lord, recognize the weight and costliness of our sin that we would be at war against our flesh day by day, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Help us to recognize, Lord, that it's only because of grace that you freely offer that we can have forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to, to live mindful of these truths. That, Lord, we would love our neighbors enough to compassionately warn them. That we would be a light to this world. That we wouldn't live for ourselves, ignoring those that are laid at our doorsteps. Lord, I thank you so much for your mercy and grace, for the life that you offered. You are glorious and worthy of praise. And I thank you that those of us who perhaps now are in seasons of suffering, that you are present, you are help, you are our rock and our fortress. And that even the, the momentary affliction that we endure on this earth 
is for a cause and for good and is going to bring about a, a, a weight of glory that is not, not worth comparing to the suffering that we endure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.